Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on Blog Talk Radio. We are the show that uh, covers issues regarding domestic violence and interpersonal violence, um, anything that's in the news that uh, would impact uh, women, children, and uh, even men uh, as far as violence is concerned. Today, I'm Heather Stark. I'm your host, and uh, I come to this this topic from about the last 15 years. I uh, went to the University of Colorado, got a master's degree, and uh, focused on domestic violence, been very interested in the field. Um, right now, I'm working on my dissertation for a Ph.D. in psychology, and uh, I am very, very fortunate to have with me today um, uh, Barry Goldstein. He is a domestic violence author, speaker, and advocate. He's been doing this for a number of years. He's nationally known, former attorney, so he's very well equipped to talk about what we're going to be discussing today, which is attorneys, lawyers, and DV. Barry, thank you for joining us. I've been looking forward to it, Heather. Good. Did I miss anything in your introduction? Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, since you had the uh, program last week, I am an instructor in the Battle program that Phyllis Frank runs. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah, Phyllis was our, our guest last week. She talked about uh, intervention programs, perpetrator interventions, and uh, the New York model, which is what she developed and uses, and uh, it was a great program. It's available in our archives for listeners who missed that. So, um, great. You work with Phyllis, and I cannot think of a, a higher recommendation. Uh, she's really quite something, and we really had a good program last year, last week with her. Barry, you are one of the few um, people that I know of who really, really understands the whole situation of attorneys, judges, and basically all court personnel, and the importance, the significance of their understanding the domestic violence dynamic. And unfortunately, very few do. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that, that's very true. Um you know, there was a recent study by the U.S. Department of Justice by Dr. Dan Saunders that found that um, judges, lawyers, and evaluators do not have the specific training that they need. And it's sort of the worst of all worlds because they don't know what they don't know, and so they think they're competent to handle domestic violence cases without looking to a domestic violence expert for assistance and in doing so, they're putting children at risk. Yeah, yeah. that whole issue of uh, custody. Um, I went through a guardian ad litem training uh, for several days here in Washington State, and although they addressed the issue of domestic violence, it was kind of like they didn't quite get it. They thought they got it, but they didn't. Um, so that was kind of a, a shocker to me. Um, what do you see as, uh, well, let me rephrase that. In our state, in my state, um, there is no requirement that judges, in particular, get any particular uh, training in domestic violence. They're required, of course, to have training and, and uh, ongoing training, but no, no particular requirement that that be in the area of domestic violence, even though a huge percentage of, of uh, cases that they see, particularly in family court, are, are going to be domestic violence cases. Is that the situation? Is that a typical situation? I think there are many states where there is some required training for judges, but you know the problem is that sometimes the training isn't good, and other times when the training is good, the judges think they know everything so they don't pay attention. Um, and you often have judges like going in and out of the courts, and there are some judges who don't like domestic violence cases and try to avoid it and really don't have the training, don't want the training, and so we often have judges who do not have the needed training. But I think even worse than that, I mean, judges were lawyers before, and a lot of times they got their information from evaluators who were thought to be the experts. But evaluators are usually psychologists, psychiatrists, who are experts in mental illness. They're experts in psychology. They know almost nothing about domestic violence. And so a lot of misinformation is repeated in the courts, and lots of times lawyers who later become judges 
got that information, you know, the wrong way. And, yeah. you know, if you think about it, at the start of the movement to end domestic violence, we had no research. And so, you know, courts had to figure out how to re- respond, and they never got into the habit of looking at the research that would inform their decisions. Now there's very substantial research that would allow them to get the cases much better and better protect children, but they're not used to looking at this research, and very frequently we'll see evaluators who can't answer questions about the research, aren't familiar with it, but the courts don't discredit them when they don't have this knowledge. Exactly, exactly. Um, Listeners, we'd love to have you uh, join our conversation. The number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. We would love to have your input into our program. We're just getting started, but we do have a caller, Barry. Let's check in with our caller. Caller, are you there? Okay, caller, I'm having a hard time hearing you. If you are on a speakerphone, are you... um, I I cannot hear you, caller. Okay, a listener, I can't hear you. So you're going to have to make a different connection. You're going to have to call in with a, a different phone number uh, or from a different phone because we just cannot hear you. The voice quality isn't there. Sorry about that, Barry. So, yeah, in my experience, which is admittedly limited in working with judges and lawyers, um, it's very uh, disheartening to realize that they don't have that basic knowledge. Um, I think the assumption, I I mentioned to you off the air that I went through a guardian ad litem training in our state, and um, they they, they certainly talked about domestic violence, but for the most part, it was just talk. You could tell that they didn't quite get it. And one of the, the comments that was made to me is, well, you have to assume when you have these parents in front of you that they're equally uh, responsible, that they're equally committed, that they're equally um, uh, interested in reaching a resolution. And yet, statistically, that's not the case. You know, you know as well as I do that the majority of people are able to arbitrate and work out their own um, parental um, parenting plans, and uh, that contentious group What's, I think that's about 15 to 20 percent of the people who actually go to court and uh, on child custody battles, and um, of that, a very high percentage involves domestic violence. So you've got a, a number of uh, factors that indicate that it may not be a 50-50 likelihood that the person before you, the people before you are equally capable and dedicated and loving and all that other stuff. Is that your experience? Yeah, if I could uh, give you specific uh, research on that. In reality, only about 3.8% of all custody cases go all the way through trial and often far beyond. And these are the problem cases. And the fact is about 90% of these cases are really domestic violence cases. And it's the worst, most dangerous abusers, men who believe that, she had no right to leave, so he's entitled to do anything he has to to regain control. And they're going after custody to regain control over her after she left. And you're absolutely right. You know, we constantly hear uh, judges and lawyers and evaluators who have gone through the inadequate training talking about children need both parents equally, and that's a lie. Children need their primary attachment figure more than the other parent. They need the safe parent more than the abusive one. But the courts are acting as if they need both parents equally. So instead of forcing the abuser to stop abusing, they're forcing the victim to cooperate with her abuser and then punish her when she doesn't do that. And Heather, if I could just mention something, because you talked about guardian uh, guardian items, and I have a resource that might be really helpful. Um, In our our new book, we have a chapter about GALs, and the last section is a list of best practices for GALs in domestic violence cases, and we convinced our publisher to make it available, you know, to 
protective mothers and lawyers and anyone else free of charge. So oh, wow. if anyone if anyone wants to go to my website, which is barrygoldstein.net, and go to the list of, to the books, go to representing the domestic violence survivor. They can get access to that um, several pages. They can give it to their GAL. They can use it for training. They can use it for anything they want, and hopefully that will help uh, educate GALs. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And as a person who is, uh, for a person who is going through uh, that whole custody uh, problem, it would be good. You know, when you go through all of that, everything is hitting you, and you don't know what's what. You don't. You're trying to take advice from the people that you think you should trust, and you just are in a, um, a a quandary. You just don't know exactly what you should do and what you know what what's best for you and your children. Um, I always say that just like um, new mothers have a birthing doula, we should have divorce doulas for women going through domestic violence situations. Um, but to have something like that, um, um, a list of best practices for GALs would help uh, tremendously, I think, um, for you know uh, a person, a woman who's going through having to select a GAL or approve the selection of a GAL. Because um, the whole thing is just so daunting at the time. So thank you so much. I'm glad your your publishers were able to do that um, for us. Uh, and again, uh, we'll mention how to access that again at the end of the show. Um, one of the things that I find distressing is you know talking about GALs is uh, how much influence that they have. And again, the, we have here in our state we have two sources for GALs. One is uh, called CASA, which, uh, King County, I shouldn't say our whole state, um, but they're volunteers who are pretty well trained um, to work as GALs. Then you have professional GALs, and the only people in this county who are allowed to be GALs are licensed attorneys and licensed psychologists. And I think we already established that those two fields have a tremendous amount of influence and, generally speaking, very little training in domestic violence issues. Am I wrong on that? No, too often you're right. I mean, there are individual DLs who I'm sure are very good, but most of them aren't. And one of the problems we have in the custody court system is a cottage industry of lawyers and evaluators who found that they can make a lot of money by helping abusers. And that's because, as we said, most contested custody cases are domestic violence cases, and since domestic violence is about control, it includes economic control. So usually the abusive father controls the assets, and so if they want to make a lot of money, they have to help him. And so you have very biased um, GALs, lawyers, evaluators who are recommending each other. And so you have the courts you know, thinking that they have neutral professionals who are actually biased in favor of abusive fathers because that's how they make their money. Yep, exactly, exactly. Um, I know um, situations where the GAL is just absolutely known as being in favor of the father. I mean, right. and, then, and then they ask the judge to appoint an evaluator who's also in favor of the father, and the judge is thinking he's, you know, that the court's getting neutral advice. Well, I do uh, uh, little talking and speaking about domestic violence, and my three things that when I talk about the court system is that there are three things that I see that courts operate under. One is, as you mentioned, um, the courts feel that a father has a right to his children, or any you know any parent, but primarily a father has a right to his children, um, which I of course say, you know, only if you're treating them well. If you cross lines and you're abusing them, then you no longer have that right, in my opinion. The other thing that the courts operate under is that, of course, just because he's abusing or he may be abusing the mother doesn't mean that he's going to be harmful to the children. And, of course, research, study after study, shows that that's not the case, that child witnessing can be a very damaging situation for children, even if he never lays a hand on them. And then the third thing that I've identified that courts operate under, uh, whether consciously or not, is that women lie. They tend yes. to think 
that whatever he says is pretty much sacrosanct. Whatever she says is open for suspicion. Um, and and I, I guess that's just on the heels of hundreds of years of um, attitude about women. But I see those three factors as operating in courts, and um, I, I just don't know how to address those issues, how to how to get through to it, especially if you're not required as an attorney or as a judge to have any particular training in DV. You know, one of the things that excites me about the Saunders study, and part of it is that it comes from the U.S. Department of Justice, so it would be seen as both authoritative and neutral. And mm-hmm. Dr. Saunders found there are certain um, training that is needed and that judges, lawyers, and evaluators who don't have adequate training tend to focus on false things, one of which is the myth that women frequently make false allegations when, in fact, in contested custody cases, they do that less than 2% of the time. So to the extent that you have a judge, lawyer, or evaluator focusing on the belief that women make false allegations, that has nothing to do with the mother in that case. It shows a lack of training, which is a major problem. But do they want training? I mean, the system's working pretty good for the the people who are, um, you know, I kind of call it the DV industry. Um, It works pretty well uh, the way it is for a lot of these people. So what motivation would they have for seeking out additional uh, training? Well, and, and you're right, they don't, but maybe that goes to the next point that I really wanted to talk about, which you raised in terms of the impact of domestic violence on children, and, and you and I, I think, touched on this the first time we communicated, that there is now a lot of medical research about the impact on children of witnessing domestic violence, child abuse, and other traumas, and it's cumulative, and so that the more the children experience, the exponentially greater the harm is. And what we see is that children have more illnesses and injuries as children and then later as adults, and their life expectancy is reduced. It's hard to imagine anything that more demonstrates what is and is not in the best interest of children. In other words, when when these courts focus on, you know, um, the rights of the parent or, you know, keeping both parents in their lives or alienation or who has more money or a nicer home, they're comparing this to how long the child's going to live. They're taking years off the child's life, they're impacting the health and the well-being of the child, and that's what is the problem, and they don't realize the enormous harm children suffer from witnessing domestic violence. Yeah. Yeah, and it can be daunting. I was just talking with a woman who's doing research on the neurological impact of witnessing uh, on children, and it is just astounding what she's finding. Um, you know, that there are actual changes in the brain of these children, and those changes are permanent. You know, they, once your brain has been changed, it doesn't easily go back to the way it was. And yes. um, it's just shocking. It is shocking. Um, so what does an individual woman who's facing this, um, if she's lucky enough to be able to afford an attorney, how does she counteract this if her attorney doesn't get it? Well... I keep telling women that the attorney works for them and, you know, that can't really be argued and yet, you know, we see there are some attorneys that won't present the information. Um, Mm -hmm. In in the book that I just mentioned that I wrote with Elizabeth Liu, what we would like attorneys to do is come to court and basically say there is a lot of fairly new scientific research that demonstrates that a lot of standard practices um, that courts are using are really working poorly for children. And we'd ask you to be open to hearing this information, you know, because it's for the benefit of the children in the case. Mm -hmm. And and we think that's a good way to approach it, 
to try to get the judge to sort of take a fresh look at standard assumptions that don't work and to have this overwhelming research that we've just been talking about um, you know, to, to present, and then that would make a strong case. That's what we want um, the attorneys to do, and we would ask women to, um, you know, when they interview their attorneys, to make sure that they're willing to present this information, because sometimes we'll have attorneys who don't want to present domestic violence information because they think it will undermine other cases. And that's a conflict of interest. That's unethical for an attorney to do, and yet we see that all the time. I think that one of the conflicts, and, I, and I'm basing this on personal experience, is that an attorney, um, attorney, att an attorney is working for his own best interests. Yes, he does his best or her best to represent the client, but ultimately the attorney is working for himself. Uh, or herself, and um, it, it's not going to be, um, I don't know, maybe that sounds crass, but, uh, you know, I, as as a worker, I'm not going to do something that will hurt me personally. So if I'm representing a client, and I believe that this client is uh, experiencing something that is not going to be uh, beneficial to me to represent, then I wouldn't do it, Right. Well, ethically, an attorney cannot undermine one client's case to help another client's case, which is really what what that's about. Now, there's yeah. an, you know there's a basic conflict. I mean, think about a doctor who has to decide whether to recommend some tests that he's going to get paid for. So he had there's a conflict, but you know you expect them to have a certain level of ethics, but yeah. Too often, the ethical groups within the legal um, profession are more interested in stifling criticism of the court system than protecting clients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that an attorney will also do, uh, and again, I'm, this may be an aspersion against attorneys, but I think it's more of a, of a comment on human nature. An attorney... Um, will not necessarily present a lot of information that he thinks is going to, or she thinks is going to just continue proceedings and not be, um, I don't know how to say this. I, I, it seems like a lot of times lawyers just want to reach a resolution, that their main oh, thing is that I want to reach a resolution, whether that is absolutely fair or safe or whatever is a secondary motive. Am I wrong in that? Well, I mean, most cases get settled, and they should get settled because um, it benefits clients to reduce legal fees, to reduce time, to emotion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so in general, promoting resolution of cases, that's, that's a good thing. That's done in all different kinds of cases. The problem with domestic violence cases is that you can't negotiate with an abuser who sought custody solely to hurt the mother because you can't come to a resolution that is safe or beneficial. And that's what's not understood. So lots of times the court is looking for a settlement that they can get both parties to agree to rather than a settlement that, you know, is fair. And, um, you know, so there's a different uh, interest of, of, of the parties, but, for an attorney to want to settle, that's fine. But to pressure an uh, a client, what we see a lot of times is protective mothers are threatened that if they don't agree to a dangerous settlement, which might be shared parenting, might be unsupervised visitation, um, yeah. that they're going to be punished, to, you know, so that they're going to have no contact with their children. That that's the thing that's really unethical, and and in fairness, I mean, you know, attorneys are also people, and you know, yep. they don't want children to be hurt. But the problem is that most attorneys don't know, don't understand the enormous risk to children and to their clients from domestic violence, and and that's where the lack of the specific training that's needed um, comes in. So if a woman is selecting an attorney or trying to find an attorney, 
she's operating we're we're assuming that she actually has funding and and money enough to to get an attorney. You mentioned interviewing an attorney when a woman is going through that kind of trauma um i don't know i i I don't know that she is in a position to be objective enough to actually do an interview. Um, it's a pretty traumatic situation to be in when you're going through a domestic violence situation. And there's lots of fear and lots of anxiety. And how, you know, it's not the same as if you want an attorney to help you with a real estate real estate issue. I mean, it's so close to your heart and so close to, you know, what you're experiencing in your in your life. How does a woman who's going through a lot of trauma find an attorney? And, and if I could add another thing, I think a lot of women, you know, they know how horrible their partner is and how much the children need them, and they just think, you know, the court system is going to protect children and yeah. don't realize the problems in the court system until they're in it and often have made decisions that undermine their case. Um, yeah. To answer your question, one of the things I think is really helpful is women should be in touch with their local domestic violence agency. Um, even if, you know, Some agencies have legal programs, but even if they don't, they probably know some of the attorneys in the area that they've worked with that they could recommend. And so that's a good starting point. And also, you know, an advocate can be assigned who will help her in a lot of ways and, you know, help her deal with, you know, what she's going through. And then in interviewing the attorney, she needs to say, you know, this is a domestic violence case. My children are in danger. And if I'm going to hire you, I need a commitment that you will present this information and you will advocate for me and for my children. And, you know, as I said, I, I constantly remind women that the attorney is supposed to work for you because too often that doesn't happen and too often they get intimidated by the attorney. Well, and they kind of are putting their putting their um, fate in who they a person that they hope can be trusted um, to to work in their best interests, and um, sometimes that's not necessarily the case. You know, either because the lawyer doesn't get it, or because um, the lawyer is you know um, motivated by different things. Uh, you know, it just it's just such a difficult thing, and if there's no money that woman has no resources, then what? You know, she's being bombarded by, you know, perhaps attorneys from the other side and coming after her and sending her documents and, you know, and she has no money to find an attorney. What what are her options? What can she do? Well, I'll tell you what ought to happen. I would certainly encourage more women and more attorneys, more protective mothers to do. You know, the laws are such that courts could... Uh, level the playing field by requiring uh, an abusive father to pay all or most of her legal fees. And indeed, in, in my earlier book with um, uh, Mo Hanna, um, we had a chapter by Judge Mike Bridner, and he talked about how the courts ought to be using their authority more to um, require abusers to pay more of the costs because if yeah. if they had to pay both sides of the cost, they would they would not benefit from doing a lot of the frivolous motions that they're doing now, and that would probably save court a lot of time. And yeah. so, I think we need to ask courts to do that. And if we emphasize that economic abuse is a very important part of domestic violence. And in so many of the cases that I deal with, the abuser has told his uh, former partner, if you leave me, I will bankrupt you. And their uh -huh. tactics demonstrate that that's what they're trying to do, but the courts aren't looking at that issue. They're only looking at physical abuse, so they miss you know, the purpose of these actions. I, I anecdotally, I, I have a friend who was going through a very contentious child custody battle with an abuser, and um, the abuser told one of her children, "Well, she's got to be out of money soon, and then you can come and live with me." 
So exactly. he knew he knew exactly what he was doing, and it's exactly what you were just saying. You know that economic abuse to try and regain control. Because um, I think you know I'm, I think most of the people who listen to this program are aware that domestic violence is not about anger or anything else. It's about control. And when a woman tries to leave, of course, that's her, the, the the height of danger for her because he recognizes that he's about to lose some control. And so many of the women who are, and families who are killed, it's when they she filed for divorce or she told the neighbor she was going to leave or, you know, that trying to get out is the most dangerous time of all. Um, and then if she lives through that and if he, you know, the, he cranks it up to the next step, which is the court system. And he will do whatever he can to control, including filing frivolous suits, as you mentioned, uh, custody battles, property, you know, settlements uh, that are just crazy. And um, one of the things that I have seen is that, okay, the the perpetrator cannot use the criminal um, justice system anymore to to go after her. Things have been resolved. Uh, he can't use that anymore. It's it's pretty much a done deal. So then he starts with civil action. And you're probably better equipped than I am to explain to our listeners the difference between criminal and civil. Um, but, um, you know, there there are no assistance, there's no assistance for uh, civil action as far as advocacy, I don't believe. Can you address that issue, Barry? Well, you know, if a woman is in the middle of a civil case, they can still get an advocate from the local domestic violence shelter. Ah, not here. Not here, Barry. In here, and the reason I mention that is because I have a, a friend who's going through this right now, and she was told by the domestic uh, violence shelter and advocacy program that they can only represent her or be with her or offer her support for criminal actions, not for civil actions. She's on her own for civil. I think that that's probably the exception nationwide. I, I wouldn't say it's you know it's the only state like that. And certainly we have a big problem with, um, you know, cutbacks in financial support to domestic violence agencies. But I think in most places they can get um, an advocate in, a, you know, a civil case, particularly custody. Um, so, you know, if, you know, possible, that would be a good thing to do. Um, I would also mention there are online various protected mothers organizations that that can be helpful. And I mean, there's the Battered Mothers Custody Conference, um, and there are many other groups that help protective mothers. And so, you know, you can interact with other protective mothers and, you know, get some support that way and get some ideas that way so that each mother doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. And if you don't have the finances to have your own computer or whatever, um, you can go to the public library. You can use the public library uh, for two hours at a, at a block usually, and you can do some of this research on their computers. Um, I'm always trying to be uh, aware of how resources are, uh, that women with no no finances can, can uh, access some of these resources. And if you don't have your own computer, Go to the public library and use theirs. It's a, a wonderful resource for you. Um, and uh, the idea of these protective mothers, I'm, I'm glad you used that terminology because for our listeners, um, that is the appropriate terminology that's being used right now about the parent who is not the controller, the parent who is worried about uh, raising the children and keeping the children safe. That's called the protective parent, and usually it is the mother. Uh, am I right, Barry? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, we talked about um, fees a lot because, of course, you know, I, that's a huge concern for, for people who are going through this. I stumbled upon an article in, um, I guess it's out of California. It's on the uh, California, calattorneysfees.com. Uh, and uh, California uh, apparently has... Um, um, a, a statute now where the um, wife, okay, the woman, can recover um, fees um, in civil domestic violence cases. So um, that, I think, is, is common in a lot of places, but um, not every place, you know. So can you address that issue of, you know, recovery of fees? Is that universal? Is that something that 
a woman should uh, address with her attorney? Yes, certainly a woman should discuss it with her attorney. I think in most states that that is available, but the problem is that, generally speaking, the courts aren't doing it. And they Mm -hmm. tend to give users a lot of chances. Um, in, In the book I wrote with Elizabeth Liu, we encourage protective mothers to early on ask the court for um, legal and other fees and to present information about economic abuse to put it in the right context. And my expectation is that even though a court could, right from the start, provide the economic support that she needs, um, they often won't do that initially but as he continues to make frivolous applications and do things that show his motivation, it might be that even if you don't get it the first try, that you keep asking based on his new violations and eventually the court gets it. And the other possibility is that by using his actions to show his motivation and to ask the court for fees, it might discourage the abuser from doing something, particularly if the court were to say, I'm not going to do it now, but if this continues, I'll consider it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if, um, could, one one yeah, other thing ahead. I wanted to just say is that we would encourage protective mothers, when at all possible, to use an expert witness. And I'm trying to do some of that myself, but perhaps domestic violence advocates can also serve as expert witnesses, and try to put together the pattern of abuse so that the court can better recognize it and help the court understand the harm here and why they need economic and other support. Mm-hmm. I know some jurisdictions uh, use uh, require the same judge to be used in domestic violence cases for any action um, in that, in that, um, between those two parties. And that, it would seem to me, would give the the court a better understanding of exactly how, you know, how this this abuse and and um, you know kind of victimization through the courts is progressing. But in some jurisdictions, you just get the luck of the draw with any with any judge as your case comes up. And then I would think it would be harder for the the courts to see, you know, how abusive legal action is uh, being. Uh, against from the perpetrator against the victim, is that correct? Is that do you see that? Yeah, I, I certainly would agree with you that um, states that have like an integrated domestic violence court where they one judge hears all cases between the parties um, is helpful and it works better. Of course, if it happens to be that the um, domestic violence judge doesn't get it, then it's a disaster. Um, But, you know, more often judges who are doing that and who hear the cases all the time get more understanding and and tend to do a better job. What I have seen is that um, in many cases an abuser is given tremendous leeway to keep bringing charges against the the spouse, against the wife, and, and just drag her in court, drag her in court, drag her in court. But once the abuser um does something that is against the court's wishes, boom, you know, it, it, it comes down on him with a fury. My, I can give an example of that. You know, the, the perpetrator who's trying to regain control or use the courts for abuse will bring an action because uh, the child didn't have a coat and therefore uh, she shouldn't be getting child support because she's not dressing the kids right. Or, um, you know, I mean, just any, all sorts of frivolous things like that. Um, and then when and the courts keep allowing it, okay, yeah, okay, fine. They may turn him down in his request, but it, they allow him to keep bringing these actions. But then, if the court says you will do such and such, and he doesn't, then they take it more seriously. Right? Wrong? Well, to some extent, but you know, I, I think there are two points that need to be made here. One, one is that there is widespread gender bias in the courts. So constantly we see things where if a mother did the same thing, you know, she'd be in jail, but the father is given latitude to do these things and and get away with it. And the other thing, you know, we talked before about how infrequently 
mothers in contested custody make false allegations. In comparison, fathers involved in contested custody are 16 times more likely to make a false allegation than a mother. And, you know, the first time I heard that, I said, no, that can't be right. I mean, women are not 16 times more honest than men. But that's not what the statistics found. It was referring to mothers and fathers involved in contested custody. And as we said before, 90% of these cases are domestic violence cases, and they tend to involve the most dangerous abusers. And those are the ones who are making these false allegations, and they're doing it constantly. So my question, and it's just the personal one, going as I said, going back to my guardian ad litem training, how can a how can an evaluator or a GAL possibly look at a situation, learn, knowing these statistics, 16 times more likely that the abusive father that will make false allegations, um, you know, the the uh, um, percentage of of time, you know, the the, the three three point eight percent of the uh, contested cases involve domestic violence, how can a, an evaluator look at the parties before him or her and say, okay, they have, it's a 50-50 chance that, you know, he's the abuser or she's the abuser? I, I don't understand how you can make that assumption. And yet that's, in my understanding, what GALs and evaluators, evaluators in courts operate on. Well, you know, part of it is um, they don't know the research that we know. So, then, you know, many, as I said before, believe that women frequently make false allegations because they don't have the training that they need. Um, the, another part of it is that there is a sense that, you know, mothers in this still sexist society do most of the child care. And that gives mothers an advantage or really gives children an advantage. And there's a sense of, among a lot of court professionals that they want to balance this out. When when we were talking before about wanting 50-50 between mothers and fathers and children need both parents equally, well, since mothers have an advantage because they provide so much more child care, they need to balance that out. So they bend over backwards to support fathers. And I think a lot of that occurs without them realizing it. Um, but it's part of the bias in favor of fathers that we see in the courts. Wow, you better not let some of these men's rights groups hear you say that. <laughs> they, they, some of these men's they rights groups take a, a career out of trying to convince everybody that men are persecuted by the, the courts, the courts are unfair toward men. Um, I mean, all you have to do is Google domestic violence and... Uh, probably two-thirds, if not more, of the information that comes up is from men's groups talking about how uh, men are abused, too, and the courts are prejudiced against men, and I know there's been quite some media coverage about those issues. And yet, in my experience, it's, it's not the case. But they must have a good PR machine or something. Well, they have a lot of money, and they get to say these things over and over again with complete confidence, and they're totally wrong. Um, and, yeah. you know, we often see researchers who don't understand domestic violence dynamics and what they want to do is count the hits and they don't consider that men generally are bigger and stronger, hit harder, cause more serious injuries. They don't mm -hmm. consider that women often are hitting in self-defense and to stop his abuse while men are doing it to maintain control and they don't yeah. consider which party is afraid of the other and so they get very uh, wrong information and yet we'll often see the media, you know, have a screaming headline because it's sort of the um, man bites dog kind of thing. It's the opposite of what we've been hearing. And so there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of bias about this. But lots of good coverage for these guys. Lots of good coverage. I mean, I don't think that a day goes by that I don't see some article talking about how unfair the courts are toward men or how, uh, you know, the courts are prejudiced against men, and, uh, you know, wow. I mean, if you see this stuff over and over and over, um, it's hard not to believe it, especially if you're not somebody who looks at the the, the research. So right. do you it's think the echo chamber. Yeah, so do you think the courts are influenced by all of this, or are they not in influenced by the media? 
I, I I think they're influenced by that, and I think one of the big problems is the media has failed to cover this issue. You know, mm-hmm. um, just to put it in context, every year 58,000 children are sent for custody or uh, unprotected visitation with dangerous abusers. In a recent two-year period, 175 children were murdered by abusive fathers involved in contested custody. And in cases of child sexual abuse allegations, even though, as we said, less than 2% are deliberately false, in 85% of these cases, the alleged abuser gets custody, which means that we're sending a lot of children to live with their rapists. And that's scary when we look at that big picture, and yet, you know, the court system is really defensive um, about that. When you tell them, hey, you know, the court system is broken and here's the research, they don't want to hear it. And as a matter of fact, they often retaliate against um, mothers or attorneys who dare to um, talk about, you know, the failure of the court. Um, And yet the courts are doing enormous harm to children in this society and really to the whole society. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the, you know there are there's really good research and there's ongoing research about that effect on children of domestic violence situations. You mentioned uh, uh, custody being given to sexual uh, offenders. Um, we had a case in Eastern Washington a few years ago where a girl was placed with uh, the abusive grandfather, and when she turned 18, she found an attorney and she sued. Um, the guardian ad litem who uh, wrote the report, she sued the court system. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to follow up on that and find out how it was dis- dispersed, you know, how the, the the case ended up. But I thought, wow, you know, good for her. She just came back and said, no, this was wrong. You put me in danger and, you know, somebody needs to be made aware of this and somebody should pay for this. Right. I, if that was done more, I think it would help change the system. But there's there's some states and some places where they give the um, GAL and the evaluators immunity, you know, to protect them from their own mistakes. Yep, yep. And in one respect, I can understand why that would be useful because then you do, you can tell it like it is. You don't have to be afraid of repercussions. However, <laughs> there's also not a great deal of motivation in that arrangement to make sure, darn sure, that you are accurate in your uh, recommendations. So, I don't know. It goes both ways, I guess, in some of these things. But um, guardian ad litems have a lot of power, and uh, so do the psychologists. You know, any, all as you mentioned before, Barry, all these uh, ancillary people that, that advise the courts have a tremendous amount of power in the outcomes for children. And I'm not sure that uh, the average person recognizes just how much misunderstanding there can be upon these these people who are making decisions. Right. And, you know, when we talk about a lawsuit, it's not a matter of, hey, they made a mistake so they can be held liable. In order to hold them liable, you know, the young woman would have to prove, you know, really egregious conduct that put her in danger. It's not... They're not insuring her, but rather they they have to act, you know, in a uh, in a proper professional manner. So, in other words, they have to be reckless uh, or disregard some real obvious uh, warning signs before they could even be held liable in states that don't give them immunity. Right. No, I mean, some when they have immunity, it doesn't matter if they're reckless, but in other cases. You still have to show malpractice. They have to do something at least negligent. And yet, you know, we see that all the time because they don't have the training they need, and a lot of them are extremely biased. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole situation with the courts is so... Most people do not know about the court systems until they're actually in that that system. And... So there's so much that you're hit with in the in the court system and in that whole process. Uh, it's just impossible, I think, for um, a victim or a survivor to really be able to deal with all that on her own. And yet, 
you know, if she can't find an advocate, or if she's in a rural area perhaps where there's no advocates, um, you know, if she can't afford an attorney, she's pretty much out of luck. Um, I know I, I wrote a book, Barry, uh, a couple years ago where I used uh, anecdotes, uh, stories from real women. And in uh, one of the stories was a woman who was in a rural area. She lost her child to the abuser. And um, the courts, oh, you know, she tried everything she could to get the, this child back. And uh, she just she just could not get the child back. And, and everybody that I tell that to says, well, she must have done something really wrong. She didn't do anything wrong. He just was much more aggressive, much more powerful, and had much more, uh, many more resources to pursue the issue. And unfortunately, um, she ended up committing suicide because she felt that she could never get her child back. And she saw her child beginning to turn into his father. So that's a pretty grim anecdote, but... You know, sometimes these things happen, don't they, Barry? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think um, absent without the suicide, that's sort of the typical outcome. And I too, I, I remember a case I handled. Also, you know, uh, she lost custody and uh, wound up killing herself. You know, um, and a lot of times the children who are placed with abusers at some point later kill themselves. Um, you know, it's a it's a real risk. Yeah, yeah. Tremendous implications of the the the, the power that a court has on an entire family, and not being part of the court system. Do lawyers understand this? Do judges understand this? Do they do they see the significance, not just the immediate significance, of where the kids will go? But do they see the significance long term in in those child the the child's life and uh, the the party's lives and uh, you know do they really understand the significance of this decision or is it just kind of business as usual? Well, you know, we generalize, and I, I think it's important to say, you know, there are, there are some really good judges who care and who get the right training and try to do the right thing, and there are judges who don't want to be on the bench or don't want to be in this kind of a case. Um, and there are ones who are biased. You know, I'm sure there are judges who, you know, have the same kind of domestic violence beliefs as the abusers. Um, so, I mean, you know, it varies. But they're not getting the training that they need to understand the risk. You know, in the Saunders study, they specifically said we need you to know the impact of domestic violence on children. We need you you to know risk assessment. We need you to know post-separation violence. This is fundamental kinds of things. And the interesting thing is, this is exactly what domestic violence advocates and experts know, and yet the courts are using psychologists instead of domestic violence experts to handle domestic violence cases, and that contributes to getting it wrong. Yeah. Well, and as a, a future psychologist, I, I see this all the time. I see uh, students that I, I work with who don't get it. I see professionals who really don't understand the dynamics of domestic violence. Um, I actually, I, I did a um, presentation uh, not too long ago with one of our Eastern Washington uh, police departments, and I was astounded at how a member of the audience who was a psychologist, a practicing psychologist, kept asking questions, and he was countering my, uh, you know, some of the statistics on my PowerPoint, saying that no, he had a client that this, that, and the other thing. And I, I looked at this man, and I thought, really, you really believe that? You know, he was coming up with all of these, these things about how you know women lie and children are better off with their fathers, and uh, you know the, that just as many men are abused by women as you know I. And I thought, you're a practicing psychologist, you're a licensed psychologist, and the damage that you can do in people's lives with with that misinformation is astounding. Um, so hopefully I'll, I'll be a better psychologist than that. <laughs> we certainly need psychologists that understand these issues and to understand that knowing psychology, knowing domestic violence, they're two different subjects. When you know both, that's a great combination. If you only know one, you should consult with someone who knows the other. Yeah. Um, well, in you fact, know, in psychology, the, 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 one of the ethical standards is that if you don't know a subject, you consult with somebody who does know. 
Um, exactly. So yeah. But that, that's that's a um, they don't discipline psychologists for not doing it. It's like an advisory thing rather than a mandatory um, requirement. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. a problem. And I I think what you also just pointed out, a lot of people, professionals and others, reach their conclusions based on a couple of examples that they have. And sometimes the information they have is wrong because they're hearing only one side. But even if it was right, it could be the exception, which is why we should be using valid research instead of basing it on a couple of personal experiences. And yet that's what a lot of people do, and and they get it wrong. And that's that, that's a big part of the problem. And it's, I think it's, again, why a multidisciplinary approach would work so much better. Yeah, yeah. And I know a lot of jurisdictions, a lot of states are moving toward that um, in their approach to domestic violence cases because I don't, I don't know the statistics on this, but I'm willing to bet that a huge percentage of court time is spent on these kinds of cases, whether they understand it or not. Yes, and they're the most dangerous cases. These are the cases where one of the parties or the judge or a lawyer is most likely to be killed or injured. You know, these are the cases that impact the children the most, and yet it's not prestigious to be handling these cases and a lot of judges don't want to be doing these kind of cases, and sometimes it shows. There was there was a tragic case near Washington, D.C., where the judge in his decision said, I'd rather not handle this case, gave the father who had a history of uh, abuse and who had, you know, was a suspect literally in a couple of murders, um, and he had had supervised visits for a while, and the judge couldn't wait to give him unsupervised, which he used to kill the child. And, you know, just that judge had no business handling the case. And there just seems to be this tremendous pressure to keep fathers in children's lives and to make sure they have full access, although they, they're not as anxious to keep mothers in their lives, even when there's no danger from the mothers. It's another of the common examples of the gender bias that, you know, permeates the courts. It's an ongoing issue, um, and uh, you know the domestic violence movement has been going on for what thirty-five years now, Barry. And Great. I see so many areas of progress, um, but I think that the court system is still in many areas. And again, all districts are operate with their own rules and their own um, uh, procedures. So there are many districts that are just fine. And uh, the, but there are too many that are not. They're operating with lawyers. They're operating with judges and court personnel and ancillary personnel that really don't get it. Um, so uh, you know, for the domestic violence victim, I think what we can say, as you mentioned earlier, Barry, is that the best resource you can do is to go to uh, either online and find some of the other support groups for you. They might have recommendations. Go to your local domestic violence uh, support group shelter. Um, find out if they're they have legal advocates. Work with a legal advocate. Try and ask people. Ask people who they know who is a good attorney dealing in child custody issues. Because um, since child custody and property settlement are probably the biggest points of contention um, in a in a divorce situation, um, those are huge. Those are huge. And uh, unfortunately, most people go into it not knowing what on earth they're going to face. And as you mentioned, Barry, I think a lot of people consider court is where you go to for justice. And ideally, that's the case. But um, court is pretty much where you go to have things settled. And whether it's settled in a just and fair manner, not necessarily so. Comments, Barry? No, you're, you're right. I mean, that's the, that's the problem, in it, and it's sad, and we can do better. And one of the frustrating things is that the success of abuser rights groups in promoting the use of custody as a way to regain control has resulted in undermining the progress that we were otherwise making in reducing domestic violence and reducing domestic violence homicide so that, you know, the risk has now gone back up because 
Mother Barry, thank you so much for joining us. I always end the show with a quote, and right now I'm quoting Oliver North, of all people. I'm trusting in the Lord and a good lawyer. Thank you for joining us, Barry. Join us next week on Three Women, Three Ways.